You're listening to the Tree of Life podcast, where we desire to be a bridge between the two covenantal peoples, physical Israel and spiritual Israel, by inspiring the non-Jewish part of Messiah's body to reconnect with its Jewish roots through biblical teaching and worshipful demonstrations, and to work towards greater understanding and reconciliation between Messiah's body and traditional Judaism. And now, here's Rabbi Joel Lieberman. Session in our four-session uh, series, sermon series, entitled Guided by Truth. I hope it's been beneficial for you. I was thinking during worship I need to kind of adjust the message a little bit. Some of this is just, I think, not applicable today. But if you have your scriptures, your iPhones, Androids, open up to Shaul or Paul's letter to the Roman believers today, chapter 12. In verse 2. Paul writes, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The word conformed, suskai matizo, comes from the Greek word root schema, which means the appearance of a man. Presenting our bodies to Adonai, to the Lord as a living sacrifice, begins as you and I undergo a radical change, a radical renewal in our minds. Scripture is clear that our mind has been tragically corrupted by selfishness and by sin. But when you and I receive that faithful day we receive Yeshua to be the Messiah and Lord into our lives, he places his mind into our mind. And whereas our mind used to focus upon the world, it now begins to center upon spiritual matters. But we still must understand how people in our world are wired in order to effectively minister to them. So I want to talk about for a couple of minutes, what is a worldview? found this quote years ago, and it says this, quote, a worldview is a commitment, a fundamental orientation of the heart that can be expressed as a story or in a set of presuppositions. What's a presupposition? Assumptions which may be true, which may be partially true, or may be entirely false. A set of presuppositions which we hold. We may hold them consciously, we may hold them subconsciously, we may hold them on a consistent basis, or we may be totally inconsistent, which we hold about the basic constitution of reality, and that provides the foundation on which we live and move and have our being. James Sire said that in his book, The Universe Next Door, a basic worldview catalog. I want to break down that definition for you for a moment. A worldview is a commitment, Sire writes. Write that down in your outline. A worldview is a commitment. It's not merely in our minds, but it's in our hearts. It's mainly a spiritual orientation. A worldview is a central defining element of a person. All of our thoughts, all of our actions flow out of and are determined by our particular worldview. Write this down. A worldview can be expressed 
as a story, as the definition said, as a story or a set of presuppositions. A worldview can be expressed as a story or a set of presuppositions. You see, our worldview is essentially a summary of how you and I view the world. It includes how the world came to be, how humans came to be, how, why the world's the way it is, and what happens even after we die. And so this story is essentially the lens through which we view and make sense of our world. Point number three in the definition, a worldview, write this down, a worldview may be true or false, held consistently or inconsistently. And held consciously or subconsciously, let me repeat it, a worldview may be true or false, held consistently or inconsistently, and held consciously or subconsciously. You say, with so many worldviews out there, how many of you know they all cannot be right? For example, the world tells us that different religions are simply different viewpoints of the same reality. That is a false claim. Why? Because religions logically contradict one another. Therefore, they cannot all be true. You see, most people hold their views, worldviews, inconsistently. We're often unaware that even we even have a worldview. Point four, write this down on the definition two. A worldview is the foundation by which we live. You see, whether you and I are aware of it or not, all of us operates under a certain set of presuppositions. All of our beliefs, all of our opinions flow out of these presuppositions. Anyone who denies that they are operating under presuppositions about the world is really fooling themselves. And so I've given you the seven areas most impacted by our worldview, and this is where I want to just skip over a lot of material here. I don't want to cover all the different worldviews as I have in the past. Turn over on the back of your outline. I want to talk about the reliability of Scripture in the Judeo-Christian worldview. Paul says in that same letter to the Roman believers in chapter 10, verse 17, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Messiah. As we talked about last session, natural revelation Creation, right? Reason, logic demonstrates to us God's existence. Natural revelation is enough to make us guilty if we reject the Lord, but it's not sufficient to teach us how to please the Lord or even how to receive salvation. Adonai has given us as well special revelation, the scriptures. That teaches us how to live. This teaches us how to please him. And most importantly, how to receive salvation. You see, if people are going to receive salvation, how many of you know it's not going to be by the power of their reason or their logic, but through the power of the word of God illuminated by the Holy Spirit? And so because of that fact, Hasatan, the adversary, the devil, has been attacking this word, God's word, since the beginning of time. And so as believers, we have to learn how to defend the scriptures from these attacks. This is what this series has been all about. At the same time, countervailing that thought could be the, the thought of 19th century English preacher Charles Spurgeon who said this. 
The word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. So we've got that, that tension there. But let's go to the scriptures. What does the scripture say about itself? The psalmist in chapter 12, guys, I think I gave you the wrong verse. I did, verse 7, in the Tree of Life version, says this. The words of Adonai are pure words. They're pure. Like silver refined in an earthly crucible, purified seven times. Matthew chapter 4, these scriptures are on your outline. We're not going to hit all of them today, but... Just a couple of them. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4 says the following. Yeshua replied, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And one final verse let's look at right now. Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Very familiar verse. All scripture is what? Theonastos, inspired by God. God breathed, in other words, and useful for teaching, for reproof, for restoration, and for training in righteousness. And so those three verses and the other three I didn't look, we didn't look at on your sheet reveal the following about the scriptures. Number one, they are the words of the Lord. God is speaking to us through the scriptures. These words always, always, always prove true. There are no errors. They're eternal. They will be true forever. They're the words of life. These words cannot be broken. They will be fulfilled. They will come to pass. They are literally theonustas. They are literally God-breathed. And the biblical authors considered Scripture to be God's Word and without error. In fact, the biblical authors used other passages of Scripture to make their arguments, right? The Brit Chadashah, the New Covenant Scriptures, contains 278 direct quotations from the Tanakh, from the Torah, from the prophets, from the writings. The New Covenant contains over 1,000 clear allusions to the Torah, to the prophets, to the writings. And as many as 4,000 passages are at least reminiscent of the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. Peter, or Kepha, good Jewish boy, considered the writings of Shaul or Paul to be scripture. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14, 15, and 16. Shaul or Paul considered what he in the other shalachim, the emissaries, said to be the word of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Even Yeshua, how many of you know, he had ultimate authority. Even Yeshua appealed to scripture when he was tempted. And he was questioned as well about various matters. Is our copy of the Bible reliable? Questions are asked by young people and many people. Well, we have no original copies of the Bible, only copies of copies. Many, including Muslims and Mormons and others as well, claim that the copies that we now have 
were corrupted. Is that true? Well, there are three tests of the reliability of, of ancient documents in general. Here are the tests. Number one, the quantity of manuscripts. How many older manuscripts have been discovered? Number two, we have the quality of those manuscripts. Are the manuscripts that we have consistent or are there large variations? And the third is the time interval between the original manuscript when it was written by the author and the oldest manuscripts that we now have in our possession. Generally, of course, the shorter that interval, the higher the reliability. So let's talk about, firstly, the Tanakh, and then we'll get to the New Covenant. We don't have as many copies of the Tanakh as we do the New Covenant, mainly why? Because of age and because of the nature of, of animal skins. But the ones we have, my friends, are of remarkable quality. The Masoretes, the group, groups of Jewish scribe scholars who worked uh, around the 6th to 9th century CE or AD, the word comes from the Hebrew, Masoret, which means tradition. These guys were very methodical in their work. They had specifications not only for the kind of skins that they were to be used and the size of the columns, but there was even a ritual necessary for the scribe to perform before he wrote the name of God. Rules governed the kind of ink they were to use. Rules governed the spacing of words. Rules that forbade writing anything from memory, these rules included. The lines, even the letters were counted methodically. And even if a manuscript was found to have just one mistake, it was dis discarded. It was destroyed. The Masoretes develop a system of notation for recording the vowels as well, the vowel pointings traditionally used when reading the consonantal texts of Scripture. Without these, the consonants of most Hebrew words could be pronounced in many different ways and given several different meanings. They also codified a system of punctuation, the cantillation marks. And even though this Masoretic text was a product, again, of the 6th through 9th centuries, CE or AD, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran in the 20th century confirms that the Masoretic texts are reliable. These manuscripts are dated from 200 BCE from the Qumran Scrolls. They're almost identical, my friends, to the Masoretic text a thousand years later. A complete scroll of Isaiah was found that dated to 100 BCE. That's a thousand years earlier than the Masoretic text of Isaiah, whereby in chapter 53 of Isaiah, a very familiar chapter, out of 166 words in that chapter, Hebrew words, only 17 letters were different. And out of those 17 letters, 10 were minor spelling differences, four were stylistic changes, things like contractions, and the remaining three were confined to one word, the word light, which was added to many English Bibles notes to verse 11 of Isaiah 53, but it had no effect on the meaning. Let's talk about the new covenant, though. We have over today 5,700 Greek manuscripts, new covenant manuscripts, ranging from the early 2nd century of this era to the 16th century of this era. And when you include other languages like Arabic, Latin, and Coptic translations, we have up to today 25,000 early manuscripts. And just looking to the Greek ones for a moment 
10 to 15 of those Greek manuscripts are dated within the first 100 years after the original was written. And about 50 of those manuscripts are written within the first 200 years of, of the author's writing. That's a large number of manuscripts, my friends, when you compare the New Covenant books or the letters in the New Covenant to other ancient texts. For example, consider the famous text called Annals, written by the Roman historian Tacitus. We only have one copy of that, dating to the 9th century CE. That's 700 years after he wrote that. The best attested to the Greek writings, writers may be Euripides, who lived in the 400s BCE. We have about 300 fragments from his writings, the earliest, though, about 700 years after he lived. And critics often point out the numerous variances that exist in the manuscripts. However, less than 1% are meaningful differences. And even those 1% have really, don't really affect any real core doctrines. We have complete manuscripts as early as the 3rd and 4th centuries CE, and we have fragments, again, as early as 25 years from the date of the, of the writing. What's the bottom line? The bottom line is this. Even though the Bible contains 66 books written by 39 different authors over an approximate period of 1,500 years, there is remarkable consistency, both in terms of the message of Scripture and in terms of the variances of the copies that we do have today. Is the testimony of the scripture reliable? Yeshua said in John chapter 3, Yochanan chapter 3 verse 12, he says, if, this is an important, and we, all, we always read over this verse, but let's slow it down. He said, if you people don't believe me when I tell you about the things of the world, how will you believe me? When I tell you about the things of Shemayim, of heaven. If the scriptures cannot be trusted, my friends, when it speaks of people, places, historical events. What Yeshua called the things of the world. How can we trust it when it speaks of heavenly things, of salvation, eternal life? There's a good reason why our Bibles have maps in the back. Just a pet peeve of mine when they put them on the glossy paper. Stop doing that! Please, put them on Bible paper so I can write on them, etc. <laughs> we, have, we have maps in our Bibles. Why? Because the Bible speaks of real things that happened in real places. The late Miller Burroughs, a leading authority on the Dead Sea Scrolls, he was a professor of archaeology at Yale University. He wrote this, quote, On the whole... Archaeological work has unquestionably strengthened confidence in the reliability of the scriptural record. More than one archaeologist has found his respect for the Bible increased by the experience of excavation in Israel. Archaeology has in many cases refuted the views of modern critics. So let's talk about the things of the world for a moment to see if the scriptures are really reliable. Go with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. Let's begin reading in verse 1. It was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of the Galilee. His brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene, 
During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Boring, or it would seem, Tiberius Caesar's mentioned. The denarius coin, commonly referred to as the tribute penny from the Gospels. Mark chapter 12, verse 15. The denarius coin in circulation in Yeshua's day. This coin shows a portrait of Tiberius Caesar. He lived. Pontius Pilate's mentioned in Luke's Gospel here. 1961 at Caesarea Maritima. Many of us have visited there where Pontius Pilate lived. An inscription was found there, which among other things confirms not only the rule of Pilate in Judea, as the Gospels say, but also his preference for the title prefect, or tetrarch in this translation. The passage mentions Herod Antipas, a marble floor dating from the first century CE was unearthed during excavations of ancient Tiberias. The floor is apparently a remnant of a pavement in the palace of Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great, who ruled Galilee from 4 BC to 38 CE. Real people, real places. The passage mentions Philip, ruler of Ituria and Traconicus. Josephus confirms his reign as well in his Jewish antiquities. Volume 18, he lived. Lysanias, ruler of Abilene. An inscription was found at Albia near Damascus from the time of Tiberius, which names Lysanias as ruler. Caiaphas and Annas Tombs, ossuaries have been discovered, which include inscriptions of powerful Jewish families that include Caiaphas and Annas. And finally, it mentions John the Immerser, John, son of Zechariah. Josephus confirms his death at the hands of Herod in his volume 18 of his Jewish antiquities. A very boring set of verses, but backed up archaeologically. Let's talk about some places. Bethlehem. Beit Lechem, House of Bread, in May of 2012, the Israel Antiquities Authority announced the discovery of a small clay seal, a bula, that mentions Bethlehem, the birthplace of Yeshua. Nazareth. How many of you have been to Nazareth, right? Many have been to the Nazareth village there. In 1961, a mosaic dated from the 3rd century of this era in which Nazareth appears was unearthed again in Caesarea Maritima. The synagogue at Capernaum, we've all been there, many have been there as well. The basalt black foundations of this first century CE synagogue. A dating confirmed by pottery finds that were found beneath the floor of that synagogue can be seen today under the remains of the fourth century limestone synagogue in Capernaum. There as well in the Galilee, we've, many have gone to Peter's house there in Capernaum. Capernaum contains the remains of an octopus octagonal 5th century CE church. In 1968, archaeologists discovered the remains of an earlier church underneath that one. This had been built around what was originally a private home, which was apparently used by Jewish or non-Jewish believers as a meeting place during the second half of the 1st century CE. How many of you have been to the Pool of Bethesda, uncovered in the 1930s, four colonnades around its edges, one across its middle. How many of you have been to the, the pool of Shiloach, the pool of Siloam, right? June of 20, 2004, engineers stumbled upon a first century ritual pool when they uncovered some ancient steps during some maintenance of pipes near the mouth of Hezekiah's tunnel. 
And how many of you, most tours don't go to Yercho. We were there, and it was like 120 degrees in Yercho in the summer. Dr. Bryant Wood, a biblical archaeologist at the University of Toronto, stated this, quote, When we compare the archaeological evidence of Jericho with the biblical narrative describing the Israelites' destruction of Jericho, we find a quite remarkable agreement. People, places... We're appealing to the minds of our young people, not just their hearts. They have these questions. Did these things really occur? Is this cop- are the copies of Scripture reliable? Let's talk about prophecy for a moment. The prophet Daniel proclaimed that Israel's long-awaited Messiah would begin his public ministry 483 years after the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That's Daniel chapter 9. The decree regarding this restoration of Jerusalem was issued by Persia's king Artaxerxes to the Hebrew priest Ezra in the year 444 BCE. 483 Jewish years later, the ministry of Yeshua begins in Galilee. Prophecy. In approximately 700 BCE, the prophet Micah named the tiny village of Bethlehem as the birthplace of Israel's Messiah. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 and the fulfillment of this prophecy in the birth of Yeshua. It's one of the most widely known, it's one of the most widely celebrated facts in history. Prophecy. In the 5th century BCE, a prophet named Zechariah, Zechariah declared that the Messiah was going to be betrayed for the price of a slave, 30 pieces of silver, according to Jewish law, Zechariah chapter 11. Some 400 years before the crucifixion, before crucifixion was even invented, both Israel's King David and the prophet Zechariah again described the Messiah's death in words that perfectly depict the mode of execution before crucifixion was invented. Psalm 22, Zechariah chapter 12. The prophet Shayahu, Isaiah, foretold that a conqueror named Cyrus would destroy seemingly impregnable Babylon and subdue Egypt along with most of the rest of the known world. Isaiah makes this prophecy 150 years before Cyrus was even born, 180 years before Cyrus performed any of these feats. Prophecy being fulfilled. The prophet Jeremiah predicted that despite its fertility and despite the accessibility of its water supply, The land of Edom, today known as Jordan, a part of Jordan, would become a barren, uninhabited wasteland, Jeremiah 49 and Ezekiel 25. Joshua prophesied that Jericho would be rebuilt by one man. He also said that the man's eldest son would die when the reconstruction began and that his youngest son would die when the work reached completion. That's Joshua 6. Verse 26, about five centuries later, this prophecy was fulfilled in the life and the family of a man named Heel. 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 33 and 34. Are you getting the drift here, people? We don't have to have blind faith in the word of God. Let's talk about miracle. Let's talk about the flood for a moment. Flood stories are common. By the way, we have a reference guide of just about 75 of those prophecies. I encourage you to pick that up. Hopefully we still have some out there in the foyer. The Tanakh prophecy, where it's located and where it's fulfilled in the new covenant. Flood stories are very common across many cultures, extending back into the Bronze Age. And while the stories, although they differ in their details, the almost universal presence of flood stories across the globe points to a global flood as being a real event. 
Beds of sediment, dregs that settle to the bottom of liquids, can be found all over the world that contain minerals that would normally decompose very quickly. These sediments, these dregs, could not have been laid down slowly over thousands of years. Otherwise, the minerals would have been destroyed by all the weathering. Such beds, such sediments tell us that a great quantity of water was involved and the sediment was deposited and buried quickly. Stones that are rolled around by waves or currents become rounded or called wash rock. They're called conglomerate. Conglomerate beds are common all over the world. Fish fossils are common all over the world. Experiments with fresh dead fish. I heard a great joke about fish this week. I was talking to a colleague on the East Coast and he said, Joel, my in-laws have been here for like a week and a half already. You know, don't they know the dead fish rule? I said, what are you talking about? He said, dead fish start to smell after three days. And sometimes in-laws overstaying their time. Anyway, it was, it was funny to me when he said it, but I love my in-laws, Bob, and yeah, I love you guys. Where was I? Dead fish. Experiments with dead fish, fresh dead fish, have shown that dead fish in water will disintegrate and their skeletons will fall apart in less than one week. The abundant remains of intact fossil fish skeletons indicate rapid burial, sufficiently deep to prevent that oxidation, prevent that bacterial decay and breakage due to feeding by other animals. Isn't that interesting? Massive graveyards of thousands and even millions of fish, dinosaurs, and mammals are seen in North America and in Europe and in Africa. These sites generally have several things in common. Number one, the burial of of great quantities of animals together. Number two, rapid burial and excellent preservation. And number three, the presence of species now limited to different continents. The position of mammals suggests death by drowning. Geological processes as seen in the modern world cannot account for those unusual conditions. April, if you'd come up. I'm going to finish off with the resurrection of Yeshua. The death of Yeshua has been attested by crucifixion. It's been attested to by Josephus, by Tacitus, by Lucian of Samusata, who wrote in Greek between 150 to 180 CE. Marabar Sepion, I mentioned last week, late first century Stoic philosopher, and the Talmud as well. Jewish and Roman historians also attest that Yeshua's tomb was empty. The emissaries, the Shelchim, the apostles, universally attested to the resurrection of Yeshua. Their actions demonstrated their belief. Why? Almost all of them are martyred for that belief. The emissaries suffered for their faith. That's documented fact, folks, by Clement, by Polycarp, by Ignatius, by Tertullian, by Origen, Dionysus of Corinth. Clement and Polycarp, who are associates of the emissaries, attested to the resurrection as well. Even Jewish skeptics, who are those? Paul was a Jewish skeptic. Yaakov, James, Jacob, they were convinced and became messianic. 
once they saw the truth of the resurrection. And finally, we see in the book of Acts the establishment and growth, explosive growth of Messianic congregations in the face of intense persecution founded on this truth, the resurrection of Yeshua. And that's why as I open the service today, we are here to celebrate the resurrection power of Yeshua in our lives. Now, I've just touched, if you'd stand with me, I've just touched on the surface of these things, showing you that the testimony of Scripture is reliable. Here's the point in all this study is that to show you that our Creator, we sung about it today too, He has reached out to us. He's made a way back to Himself as Abba Father after Adam and Eve's high treason in the Garden of Eden. How? Through His Son, the Messiah Yeshua. The Torah proclaims, quoted, is the blood that makes atonement because of the life. The New Covenant Scripture gives us more information in that regard where Paul wrote this, quote, that God in the Messiah was reconciling mankind to himself, not counting their sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Yeshua said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so there may be some who are listening, who are here, who might be listening some other place, who need to come to the Father today on Father's Day weekend. You recognize now you can't live truly without the mercy of God, without His forgiveness. You want to be a part of His redeemed family. How do you do that? Very simple. It's like going back to school. We've gone back to school here for the last four weeks. But we're going to go back again in terms of this. It's the ABCs. A, admit that you've not lived a perfect life and in fact you've committed crimes in God's sight. Sin. You're in need of a Messiah. You have to agree with God. You haven't measured up. I haven't measured up to his perfect standard of sinlessness. That's A. We've got to do some real heart-searching admitting today. B, believe. We have to believe that Yeshua is the only Messiah available. Oprah is not going to save you. The scripture says that salvation is found in no one else, as I mentioned. Nobody else. If you need a Messiah today from your sinfulness, you have only one choice. You have only one choice. I didn't get into Islam. I didn't get into Mormonism. I didn't get into all the different worldviews. I didn't feel like we wanted to do that today. We have only one choice, and that's Yeshua. Finally, see, we have to choose to follow him as our Lord and Messiah, to place our faith in him alone. Repentance, teshuvah in the Hebrew, requires that we make a conscious choice. What does that mean? It means we actually change our minds about the way we're going to live for the rest of our lives. It means we get off the throne of our life and let Yeshua sit on the throne himself. So, if you've done that, if you've done A, if you've admitted your sinfulness, B, if you believe that Yeshua is the only option that can really save you. If you want to take care of the sin problem in your life, be delivered from bondage, you have to choose to place your faith in Yeshua as a Messiah. And if that's you today, I want to invite you to pray something like this with me today. Adonai, thank you for loving me so much that you sent your only son who died on that tree of sacrifice that day in Jerusalem to pay in full for all of my sin. Lord, I'm so sorry for the way 
I've been going my own way for so long. I confess I've sinned against a holy God. I admit I need a Messiah to deal and cure my sin problem. I believe, Lord, today as I'm hearing the message that heaven and abundant life here and now are gifts that only you can give me. Gifts that I can't earn, gifts that I don't deserve. Help me, Lord, to become the person you created me to be as I choose today, June 18th, 2022, to allow Yeshua to be the Lord and master of my life. Thank you for doing it today, Lord. I repent of sin. I'm sorry, God. I want to receive your atonement. I know you're a good father. Maybe my dad wasn't a perfect dad, but I'm hearing about a perfect heavenly father today who loves me and wants me to fellowship with him in a close relationship, but he has to deal with that sin problem. He did all the work. I just received the work today. I received the atonement. I received Yeshua's death for me as a perfect sacrifice for my sin. Thank you that I've come into your kingdom today. Lord, I'm going to ask you to open up your word to me. Bring other believers beside me to teach me to how to understand the word of God, how to understand prayer. Because I'm an open book now, Lord. I'm a new creature. All things have been passed away. I'm grateful. Lord, I'm beginning this new life today. If that was you today, I want to congratulate you. I want to wish you a mazel tov, a congratulations. This is day one of your new life. Now get to it and get after it. We've got some food I want you to get after today as well. So with all that said, I'm going to pray God's blessing over you. And then you are dismissed outside and enjoy yourself. After Kiddush. Yivarechecha Adonai V'yishmerecha Ya'er Adonai panav lecha V'yichuneka Yisha Adonai panav lecha V'yasem lecha May the Lord bless you and keep you today. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May Adonai lift up his countenance over you and grant you shalom. In the name of the Prince of all shalom, the shalom the world needs, Yeshua of Nazareth. And all of us who are with him to the end said, Amen. Amen. Happy Father's Day. We'll meet you out for Kiddush and then you are dismissed outside. Thanks for joining us this week. Make sure to visit our website, treeoflifeca.org, and be sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes, Google, Spotify, or via RSS so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you've found value in this show, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes or Simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our Facebook page, Tree of Life Messianic Jewish Congregation, to see more content, including our weekly live stream. Be sure to tune in for our next episode as we continue to explore our Jewish roots through Scripture. <laughs>